What is Peace Brain? Peace Brain is the synergistic connection between our mental and emotional bodies, blending the electrical power of the mind with the magnetic force of the heart. Listen and explore how to create unity worldwide as we blend science and metaphysics and open our hearts and minds to the possibilities of peace on earth and create the life we are each destined for. Featured guests range from angel communicators to zoologists and everything in between. Now here is your host, Dr. Gail Lash. This is Gail Lash. Welcome to the Peace Brain Show. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh my gosh, I have a wonderful guest, um, Laura Miller. We had her on last time and we're having her on again. And we're going to be talking about zoos and animals, animal communication, and the relevancy of having animals under human care, uh, specifically at, at zoological parks or aquariums, and see how you can benefit from the animals that you're going to see and how we can all learn more about communicating with animals to really go forward and making this more of a sacred act. We'll talk about that. So let me just stop for a moment and take a breath. Oh, my goodness. Happy to have you all here. I always open the show with a quote, and then I do a meditation at the end of the of the. Uh, show called a Peace Brain Meditation, so please stay tuned for that. That's going to be amazing and transformative. And I love this quote I've chosen today. It's I again I have this cadre of quotes that I've collected over the years, and I simply go to the first one that catches my eye, and it's no accident that this is the one that was chosen, if you will, for this show. It's from Albert Einstein, and he said this in 1954. He said, a human being is part of the whole universe, a part of limited in time and space. We experience ourselves, our thoughts, and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for only a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from the prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. We shall require a substantially new manner of thinking if humanity is to survive. I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. <laughs> so, um, I think this is self-evident, what he's saying here, is we need to come up with a new paradigm, a new way, really, to address animals and address nature and address each other. And, of course, in this middle of this pandemic, we are discovering that this is very true, what he said, gosh, almost 70 years ago or 65 years ago. So, let me introduce my guest. Um, her name is Laura Miller, again, and tell you a little bit about her. She's a professional animal communicator who, through her consultancy, Oh Best Beloved Animal Communication, helps families as well as zoos and sanctuaries 
support the emotional well-being of animals in their care. For private families, Laura brings multiple family members together to include the, the unique relationships they all have with an animal to make results even more positive and lasting. For sanctuaries, Laura can offer them the animal's ex- experiences in order to help those institutions offer the highest quality of responsible caretaking possible. She has consulted with sanctuaries in South Africa, Liberia, the United States, with an emphasis on primates. Laura empowers her human clients with animal communication techniques so that they can have an evolving relationship with their animals and reclaim their own innate intuitive abilities. Her vision is to help normalize animal communication to foster a kinder, more peaceful world for human people and animals. She is certified as a professional practitioner through the Animal Talk Africa program. And you can find out more about Laura at Instagram and Twitter at bestbelovedac, that's B-E-S-T-B-E-L-O-V-E-D-A-C, and her email is laura at obestbelovedanimalcommunication.com, and that's spelled just an O, B-E-S-T, B-E-L-O-V-E-D, A-N-I-M-A-L, and then communication, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. Uh, so, dot com. <laughs> so, yes. Laura, Laura at Communication dot com. Welcome, Laura, to the Peace Brain Show. Thank you, Gail. Joy to be able to do this with you again. I know our conversation. <laughs> we had so much fun last time, and oh my gosh, we had so much to talk about that we needed to do at least one more, if not maybe another radio show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know, and I keep thinking, like, okay, if we. If we repeat something that we said, because some of our our conversations that we have off stage, I'm like, yeah, so I understand. Fruitful. They're so <laughs> fruitful too. So, so uh, I might be. Did I say that in a conversation? Did I say that in the last show? But you know, we can always repeat, and it will just reinforce it's something that we said at an earlier time. I agree, definitely. Yeah. So it's interesting. We both work with zoos, aquariums, sanctuaries, uh, places that have animals under human care. Let's let's just dive in and talk about that for a minute. Um, yeah. Let me let you start. Well, I am interested, you know, in the way of having a conversation with you, so we can go back and forth. Because what you do with uh, Ursa International is you. Design what I'm understanding is uh, animal centric habitats that are peaceful for both people and animals to be in in zoos, which is something I find very extraordinary about your work. And it also involves from you know talking to you and my understanding that you get into the animal's experience of the habitat, and that, that is so progressive and so. It seems so obvious and so basic, and it shifts to me along the line of what I'm doing in an intuitive capacity and, you know, passing that along and making that available to others to shift the center of the zoo to being something that is in between humans and animals and passing back and forth instead of humans spectating at animals, (laughs) which 
is the older version of a zoo. Exactly, exactly. And let's just talk about the history of zoos for a second. They started out as menageries under the kings and queens, mainly of Europe, because the, the Europeans would travel the world and find these oddities in other countries, other places, would bring you know one animal of a species back to put them on show. And, and even sometimes people, oh my God, but we know they did this, of bringing yes, back pygmies and other, other humans as also a show object. And so it became this menagerie that spoke of colonialism, ah, colonialism of, of this power over the nature and power over other cultures and peoples. And, of course, the world has changed tremendously from that, it, although we still exist in very much there are many states in the world of power over. But I'd like to think we are changing that now, and certainly we've woken up as a human species from that day and era of, of what we can, who we are now and how we fit into nature. And so zoos have evolved over the time of, oh gosh, um, I won't give a whole history of it, but I know the last hundred years, really, of more landscape immersion, more going into the trying to make the natural habitats look like those that the animals actually come from. Uh, that started back in actually the early 1900s with opening up and putting moats in instead of caging and fencing so that people, visitors, were looking over a moat into the animal's habitat but still, you know, you had, it was a taxonomic menagerie. It was a taxonomic, you'd go through and look at all the cats. You'd go through and look at all the bears or all the birds. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the economic, I'm sorry, the ecological systems displayed like zoos do now, or, or by and large, at least those that are accredited and wanting to work with conservation in, in situ, you know, in the actual natural habitats. They talk about the whole ecology of the area and, and what species coexist together and how they evolve together. So it's a, it is different now, but we can also say they're all under human care. They're all in captivity. So let's talk about that for a minute because that obviously has a lot of ethics now is why zoos are continuing to exist. That's a huge and that I don't want to take up the whole radio show on this. But it is true that now things are changing, particularly with millennials coming in and a new paradigm shift in the way people view nature and animals. Zoos are now hearing from their public. Uh, and let me just step back for a second and say that there is a North American association called the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, AZA. You can go to aza.org and find out more about it. It has about 240 accredited zoos in North America that really do have very high standards for the animals under their care. And over 200 million visitors visit those zoos every year. So zoos are hugely popular and they are an amazing opportunity to educate the public about these animals that, that most people will never see in their lifetime. Most people will never actually go to the places where these animals are. So the hope is that conservation and um, a valuable mindset will 
sink into the visitors <laughs> and so that these natural areas in the wild can be protected. But <laughs> still, <laughs> there's a lot of controversy around it of why do we need to have these flagship species or these particularly charismatic megavertebrates like an orangutan or an orca or a dolphin or um, a Siberian tiger on display when you've got, you know, it's more about protecting the wild. So what are your thoughts, Laura? Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> wow. Well, um, hmm, where do I find a, get a claw hold in there? <laughs> claw in there. Um, okay, so I'm just going to freeform it for a minute for an AC perspective, and this might be going in through the side door. There's a very interesting book uh, called Communicating with Orcas by Marigetton, where she goes, she, Orca is sort of her, she's an animal communicator. And orca is, orca whales are sort of her favorite uh, species that she forms links with. And she did a project where she went to a bunch of different uh, aquaria and, and um, SeaWorld type parks. So this is about ethics of captivity and individual animals. And something that she discovered was because she was talking to different whales and hearing the different whales. Obviously, we can just be talking, not hear. So she was hearing the different whales, and she discovered that there were some whales who were much more chill about where they were in captivity, and then there were others who were really depressed, and there were others who were like, oh, my God, let me out of here. And so that was an interesting dimension to me that I had not previously thought about and something she she this is before I started studying uh, AC animal communication that I came into contact with this book that individual animals can have different perspectives on what they where they are and what they're doing there and some of them might be okay with it and there are others who might it might just not be okay for them to be there and there's some who might be okay to be there with some adjustments and that was a very complex view and discovery but one that opened my eyes for people because I, I believe we tend to sometimes as humans get into grouping as a species and saying well this species is like this not necessarily seeing the animal as an individual because in a zoo they are representing their species However, they are also an individual with an individual story, individual well-being. So going forward, that's something that zoos can, can take into account. Um, I realize that is a huge devotion of resources. It involves a lot of listening and a lot of patience um, to say, I'm going to hear my individual animals. But to shift the ethic of zoos from the things that people have found problematic in the, you know, in the past and continue to with some individual zoos, that is, that is a big step that could happen. Excellent point in that animals are individuals. You know, this is yes. something 
that you're right, we don't think about, but if you are an animal keeper, like I have been at a zoo, you understand completely that these animals have unique personalities, unique needs, um, and and really just amazing in, in how different each one of them are. Now, maybe that I'm talking mainly with mammals. Uh, I've worked with some birds, but mammals certainly, you can understand, would have very different personalities. And I'm sure other species do too, other taxa, um, other, you know, the, the birds, yeah. the insects, all of that would also, you'd find that if you were to communicate with them individually. Yes, yes. And that there's a willingness to hear and a willingness to see in a different way that, you know, some people like keepers. And as far as birds go, I mean, a lot of people who keep chickens would definitely say, <laughs> I, have one, I have one chicken who acts like this, another chicken who acts like this. Good point. Um, yeah, and I'm and so they're pretty familiar with that. Yeah, and herpetologists are too. Obviously, there's very yeah. different in the way snakes will act or an amphibian will act. Absolutely, when you really get to know your animal. So let's talk for just a moment. We'll get back to this ethics of zoos, but let's talk just a little bit about animal communication. What is it? What are we talking about? How you actually can talk with an animal? Okay, so it is an intuitive link that you form by going into a self-induced meditative state. So it's a slightly altered state that you go into that's similar to meditation. And the way I do it, I go through specific uh, protocols to prepare me to do it so that I know that I'm going to be hearing the animal and not myself reflected back to me. And you get... You catalog impressions you get from them if you have a particular area of inquiry that you want to ask them about, then you can pursue that area of inquiry. So you get permission from them and you and you sit, at least the way I do it, um, and then I record the, the folly of information that comes in and that is the form of the communication. And then if you're working professionally, you're doing it for a client, then you would prepare that into a report to give to the human client that would give them information about what their animal is experiencing from their point of view, uh, things that the animal wishes would happen to make them happier. And it can give insight into behavioral issues it can help it's not obviously a substitute for veterinary care but it can give some information that would help a veterinarian home in on an area for instance for the if something that uh, required some extra attention and it can so it can be very beneficial in that way by providing that sort of information that might be in a behavioral area something that a human doesn't necessarily have access to through the animal's perception, the animal's past, because just like we do, animals have pasts that are sometimes unknown to the humans around them. And just like our pasts influence the choices we make. And you remind me of one of the keynote speakers at one of the AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, 
annual conferences was Temple Grandin. And she talked very much about that, of the animal's perception, particularly cattle going off to be slaughtered, you know, going into the chute and the way that they saw the, the light and the angles of the, the path that they were walking either made them very nervous or kept them very calm. And so it really makes a difference of the way the animal is feeling. I hate to say this, but, you know, when they're going off to be slaughtered. <laughs> because, because the energy of the, the, well, not just energy, but the actual enzymes and, and amino acids and cortisol and all of that that you'll find that are released due to stress actually end up in the meat. So we're talking about science here working with the animal communication, if you will, and the perception of the animals really has yeah. benefits for, it's a win-win. And one reason that Temple Grandin was so revolutionary and able to do that was because she's on the autism spectrum. Exactly. And she was she identified in her you know youth was the experiences the cows were having, the things that would panic them, or similar to things that would panic her, and the things that would soothe them, being similar to the means she would use to soothe herself. And that ability to shift and center the point of view it's akin to what we do in AC it's not quite the same thing obviously this is you know a intuitive different different vibe but her deep practical sympathy for the cattle was through her own perception and she said um, I'm paraphrasing her quotation was they give they give their lives for us. It's the least we can do is make sure that they don't suffer needlessly while they're doing so. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to just wrapping up <laughs> in this conversation, the ethics yeah. of zoos. Where do you think, I guess my big question is, where are zoos going in the future? What would be the most ethical way to have a zoo exist, if, if one should exist? One of the, I was uh, dwelling on this after I spoke to you the last conversation we had, because if you bring animal communication into the practice of the zoo, for, you know, keepers to learn how to do it, I mean, a lot of keepers do it intuitively anyway, but to do it on the level of getting a hit of this is what the animal is experiencing. They're telling me that they need a change in their environment to be willing to accommodate that just as you would if it were a human being. And that is a big shift. And it takes zoos into a region of the unknown where you know, if, if you accept that animals are sentient, if you accept that they have completely valid experiences, if you accept that their um, their experiences can be enhanced or contracted, then it really does uh, ask more of you to see that they're taken care of for what they're giving you, which is their life in captivity. And what you then in balance, in exchange, 
And I, and I believe, Gail, when you're talking about zoos being places of peace, when you know that everybody is being heard, then it really is a place of peace where you have done absolutely everything you can to create an animal-centric habitat that animals are going to be able to, to live their life as naturally as possible in as multifaceted a way as possible. And I love that you brought in the depth of the environment because that was something that zoos did as sort of one stepping stone you know, where they started to, like, make the environment look like icebergs for the polar bear. So to put into the animal communication benefit for zoo uh, versus just zoos in general and the history of zoos. So what animal communication can bring to a zoo is, and this goes to the peacefulness that is proposed of a zoo, is hearing the animal so that it is, the zoo is a place of interface between animals and humans to really have the zoo be a bridge. And that means it really is a peaceful place where everyone is heard and everyone is respected. And that's a model for human peace as well, where you know each being, according to their own difference and according to their own needs and interests as a species and also as an individual is being heard and that receptivity can help shape the decisions that uh, that receptivity to the animal's point of view can help shape the decisions that a zoo makes and it makes the decisions um, you know for its practices for its environment for the way it runs its off as a zoo, that's a, you know, this is going into really futuristic territory, but I would encourage people to open up their imagination that much. And it is taking zoos into a place of the unknown to say, well, what would happen if we actually started listening to the animals? <laughs> yes. What would that mean for us? Because if you know that somebody has something to say, then, then you're responsible. You are you are responsible for how you respond to it. And then you do have a, an extra level of maturity in the way that you deal with, with them. And, and letting animals to have some degree of agency over their fate in a zoo, I would, you know, obviously everybody should have as much agency as possible over their fate. But as we have this period of time where zoos still exist, whether letting animals speak and be heard will eventually br bring about the end of the old zoo model as we know it, or transform zoos into places where they are peace sanctuaries, where the animals who are there want to be there. Then everyone can be peaceful of heart. And as much as possible for the animals who are there now, it also helps zoos say, we're doing everything possible, literally everything possible for the animals, for their well-being, according to how they are speaking and representing themselves. And that shifts zoos out of a paternalistic 
model of what we know is good for you <laughs> to, okay, what do you want and what do you need and how can we give that to you? And I think there are probably a lot of keepers who are already on that plane where they, of how much they love the animals that they interact with every day. And it, it would involve, um, you know, moving between the levels of keepers and administration, education and outreach, which is something we've talked about, Gail, um, to how much you are actually hearing the animal. And that's what AC can bring to, you know, the keepers who know how to do it, if the zoo hires external consultant, and then they, and the investment they're making is hopefully an investment that they want to follow through with. <laughs> exactly. So just thank you, Laura. Um, for everyone listening, you're listening to Laura Miller, and she's an animal communicator. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter at bestbelovedac. Oh, oh, excuse me, you're right. Uh, oh, bestbelovedac, with just the letter O. Thank you, Laura. Um, you're so it's, it's interesting you bring about, you know, we're talking about talking to the animals in a captive setting, in a zoological or aquarium or sanctuary setting where the animals are under human care and being able to talk to the animals and really get them to understand, get them to understand what we need and we understand what they need and so everyone's on the same page. Yeah. What, what comes to mind in designing zoos and aquariums, which is what Nevin and I at Ursa International do uh, with the zoo community by and large, is that we, we design the best habitat that can be there to, as we talked about a little while ago, making it into a naturalistic habitat, making it not only for the visitor look like it is where the animal exists in the wild, but really giving the animal choice. And, and I wonder, this is what I really want to get into is zoos now are accredited zoos, zoos that are really in the forefront of design at the moment, are very well aware of animal wellness and that animals need choice. So when a visitor walks by, you won't always see the animal. In other words, the animal has choice to be off view to be out of view, to be hiding in a corner, to be doing something by itself that isn't under scrutiny, to be having a lot of enrichment, climbing apparatus or, or places to dig or places to engage in those behaviors like they would in the wild situation. So it's zoos are already doing a lot of, through science, through animal behavior observations, putting in those those facets that the animals need to have in those captive situations and those human care situations. But what we're talking about with animal communication is even going one step further. And not only for the animal, what I want to also talk about is for the visitor. Because mm -hmm. it's not just about listening to the animals, as we started with the beginning of the show, saying that animals are individuals. And when you communicate telepathically or through the heart with them and hear them, and hear what they need, that many of the animals have different feelings about their situation. Some will like it, some will not. Some need you know, to have more shade in this area or more access to water. Others want to have some place to climb on or, or they want a mate or one doesn't want a mate or all these different 
just like individual personalities of humans, that animals are very much along the same vein. So it's, it is about listening to the animal. What I want to chat about now is how do we get the visitor to listen to the animal or to understand what's really going on in this particular situation where they're viewing an animal perhaps from Africa or Asia, and this is the United States where they're viewing from. What are your yes. thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, just to say one more thing about choice. One of the environments that you helped was uh, that you designed is a chimp haven, and that is a sanctuary for retired laboratory chimps. Exactly. And I know that chimp haven choice is super important because they are taking animals, beings, chimps, from an, an environment and a lifetime where they had no choice over what happened to them and putting them in a big forested environment with a lot of different choices about who they hang out with, whether they go inside or outside, what they get, what they want to eat, all kinds of things. So that is a huge step up in quality of life. Thank you. For, yes, we're, we're yeah, very happy. We yeah. are part of that project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for visitors, something I envision where animal communication could be a huge added dimension to the way visitors experience a zoo is, for instance, for it to be part of a zoo's education programming. Yes. If you are, yes. I agree. You, Yay. Yeah. <laughs> so you offer it to children who, because zoos have a lot of children's programming. If you teach children to believe themselves when they feel like they're picking up something from an animal and support that and ask them to go farther with it, then that is enhancing the experience that children are having. And, you know, obviously children shouldn't always just be the only ones who get all the good stuff. Like that can be something for adults too that can be part of the zoo where the visitors can say, okay, I'm going to have an AC experience. You can have a workshop with an ambassador animal, and then they can take that out into the zoo environment, believing in themselves that they actually can do this. And then the zoo acquires a lot more levels of experience when you're there. It's not just your five senses that you're experiencing the zoo but you, you're hearing the voices of the animals. You are getting hits of information from them about what, how are they seeing you. I mean, depending on how the uh, practitioner in that moment, you might be able to see yourself through the animal's eyes on the other side of the boat, things like that. That would be really so, cool. That would be really trippy and really cool, and that is a totally possible thing that could happen. And this is accommodating the fact that all different humans have different styles of the way they receive communication. So that could easily be something that happened. And then you start to have that depth of dimensionality and sympathy. And why I really love this for young zoo visitors, young people, children who are 
aware of AC, believe in themselves that they can do it, they haven't had it storied out of their system that, that it's impossible, that they take that forward into the career choices they make, into the conservation decisions that they make. And for zoos who are progressive zoos that are invested in their conservation mission, if you're seeding the world with young conservationists who are inspired at the heart level, emotional level, not just from what they're imagining, but what they actually get, and to say, I want to make a better world for tigers because of this tiger that I met one day. That is a huge gift to the future. Mm, I love it. I agree. And what I like what you said is not only conservation-minded adults, but those who are not necessarily wanting to make science or animals their career, but someone that really wants to, um, gosh, I mean, someone who's going to go build an office building will keep in mind the nature that they're actually using that development, the space they're developing on, and we'll actually exactly. look at the land and the animals that are on that land and, and work with them as opposed to working against them by just clearing it all like we do normally in today's mm -hmm. society, in today's world. I want to go a step further in this in that, you know, is making the zoos a place of peace is my mission, <laughs> my dream. Yes. And having the people really almost go on their own private eco-tour, if you will, much like if you were actually visiting a national park or in some wild space, and you were taking the time to really listen to nature, to walk through it with reverence, to have that, that inner sacred experience with the wonder and the awe of nature. If we can make our zoos be that, where people come in and they are able to either have almost like a little private tour of 10 people with a guide or something like that, your personal family, or to space people out to a certain extent. Of course, with COVID, we're having to do this anyway. Yeah, um, where, where you are the ones really taking the moment to stop in front of that animal or that forest or that swamp or that um, mountainous area or stream at the, at the national park or at the zoo or at the aquarium to where you can stop and communicate and hear that animal, hear that nature in front of you and what it's teaching human beings or what it has to say for today, you can ask it questions. You know, what do you have for breakfast? <laughs> or what's your favorite toy? Or um, who's your companion that you like the most? I mean, you can ask all kinds of questions. But really to listen to nature is so important. And it also brings that peace into, into the human being. It brings that sense of, of silence, of connection, of calmness, of peace into our being, which we need as well. Just like we talked about Temple Grandin earlier, we need to lower our cortisol rate. We need to lower mm -hmm. those stress factors. And zoos and aquariums and, and sanctuaries can really be these places where people go to find, to refine themselves. To, to reconnect with themselves through the outdoors and through all the ambassadors of the outdoors, be it the animals or the plants or 
the sunlight, the wind, the water, etc. Absolutely. So I'd like to see animal communication taught, and I'd like to see these institutions that have animals under their care really take that step further and make the experience not just to be an entertainment value, but to be a place where people can find that solace and that reconnection with themselves and find the wonder of those animals in those places. Yes, I I had that experience. It was last fall, and Linda Tucker from the Global White Lion Trust had, you know, encouraged people to go to their, you know, the zoos around and see how the what the zoos were doing for lions in the wild. If the zoos kept lions. Oh, interesting. And what did you find? I, uh, well, I went to a zoo called Southwick's zoo that is in southern Massachusetts this was this is where this experience occurred that I'm going to tell you about to check on their lions and this was um, just to see you know what are they doing to talk about lion conservation you know communicate with them about how they could take up take it up a level because her premise was these lions you know the zoo is profiting from having lions there so what is the zoo doing in exchange to help wild lions instead of just having lions? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I went on a scouting mission and also to, you know, pay homage to the lions because she also said, you know, go and just honor those lions, you know, in their splendor because they are still lions and that, you know, they are, happen to be in a zoo. So I went to Southwick Zoo. I remember it was Labor Day and I spent – you know, pretty much the whole day at the zoo because what happened was I became really interested in all of these primate species that I hadn't known about because I was just starting studying primates in my primate behavior class at UMass. And so what I was I would do is and I didn't do this deliberately, I would just kind of be by an enclosure for long enough to watch several turns of humans go by. Yes. And and it's interesting because it's like if you stay, so where you're, what you're talking about, if you stay by the enclosure, like the weirdo, be the weird person <laughs> who's just <laughs> sits there for longer. Cause it's cause sometimes people in a zoo, especially parents who are really harried and they've got kids crawling all over them and they're stressed out. They don't always give the kids a chance to be present with the animal either. You know, because they're this, like, overburdened parent who's like, yeah, come on, let's go. But you watch, you know, a couple of, of tur- be there long enough to watch a couple of turns of people go by. And then you really start to see what the animals are doing. And you can be quiet and you can be peaceful and watch them. And, and oh, my gosh, this is a, this is a mind blower. You can actually go back to the exhibit later <laughs> Like go to it several times while you're at the zoo if there's a particular animal that is really drawing your attention that day. So you don't just go by the gibbons once. You go by the gibbons and you do another lap and then you come back and you sit with them for a while and you you know, be willing to be the weird person. Um yeah, so that was a big uh revelation for me because I stayed there long enough to really watch the animals doing lots of different things. 
instead of the way people usually do a zoo, which is much more of the entertainment base where, you know, if they're not being mindful or they're just letting their stress get to them instead of having the zoo be a place of peace, it's a stressful entertainment thing where they're like kind of pushing the baby carrier, like they're in a mall or something. (laughs) And it doesn't have to be that it can, it can be, you know, much more of what you're talking about, Gail of, you know, of a place of, of refuge mm, and like of part. Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. And I can see where when you go back to a particular species, back to the gibbons, for example, which is a primate, that you could, you could really communicate from your heart, even if you know nothing about animal communication. Yes. Because you are taking the time to really focus on that species on that individual animal or group of animals and and watch what they're doing, like you're saying, with observation, but also mm-hmm. just to feel what they're doing. You, f- you feel the family dynamics, mm-hmm. if, and you feel how the little baby crawling around on the limb is, and you feel how um, maybe that relates to something within your own family. It's, it's really how do we connect with what nature is doing and what we are doing and who we all are. Um, yeah, there's very much that yeah. connection, that universal connection. Yeah, that's why Lewis Leakey, when he chose Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey and Baruti Galdicus, when he said he said, you know, women. This was this was his premise, and he said women are better observers because they're more patient. <laughs> and you know, because and that was interesting because you know it could have been seen as really boring, but what Jane Goodall would just do is she just you know for weeks and weeks and months and months and however many thousands of hours just being there and what you and I talked about last episode of noticing to notice to be still in your humanity and to be receptive to noticing what somebody else is doing is a position of of love and respect it does come from the heart and it it comes through the senses and it is oriented in the heart because it's respectful. So I'm going to bring a new twist to this because what you just said just just ran this into my brain. And that is <laughs> if, we, if we stop and we're patient and we're noticing and we're watching not only animals and nature, but our fellow human being, then we can be that connected. We can learn a lot of how to interact and how to create a relationship with that person. So I'm thinking about those skills that one might learn at a zoo, for example, watching the animals, can then be exported and taken into the job situation, the work situation, or the home situation, or the neighborhood situation of let me watch that person and let me observe what they're doing, what they're feeling, how they're reacting to certain things. And I know better than now in that observation of how to have a more harmonious and peaceful and uplifting relationship in conversation or what, or in action with that person. Yes, absolutely. Cause it is about, you know, listening, um, which is something that, we can learn and relearn how to do and, and just really listen. And it can be a human, it can be an animal. Let them be what they are. Let them be who they are. And to step back from anticipating them 
to step back from writing your own story about them <laughs> yes. before they even had a chance to do something or fitting them into a template. And that, again, that yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, isn't that something we do with people as well? We write a story about them without really knowing them until we sit down and know them or get to know them better. And then we let them be who they are, that we honor the diversity of the human race, not try to make everyone be the same. Yeah, yeah. And that's something, um, it does apply to human relationships. Amelia Kincaid, who's another communicator, when she's teaching, she talks about uh, doing communication with uh, domesticated animals is her you know, primary focus when she's saying this quotation. But she's saying... Just go to the animal and say, however you are, it's okay. I'm not trying to fix you. You can be, if you want to be sick, you just be sick for as long as you want. If you want to be, you know, stinky, if you want to be weird, you just be weird for as long as you want. And I'm just going to be here for you and be here with you while you do that instead of trying to fix the animal. And... That's a lot that can go into our human-animal way of being with each other, of you be, you just be you, and I'm going to hear you, I'm going to receive you, listen to you, I'm not going to try to fix you or fix what you're saying or uh, override it or fit it into a bigger story I'm telling myself. That requires so much presence, and that really is the you know one of the source points of peace. And you can you know we can learn it with animals to apply to people. We can learn it with animals to apply to other animals. <laughs> yes, I love that. I, thank you for sharing that quote from Amelia. You're right; she's got some amazing. Well, she has an amazing talent and, and stories herself of being with animals all over the world. It's, it's, I love that because diversity is so key, and we're learning again about this, how much we're connected through this pandemic, and yet we're all different, and yet we're all the same. So it's, we have so much in common, and we forget we have so much in common with nature, too, and that we can just be present, just be present with each other and with these animals with a, a scene in nature, for example. I think that's why people really love going out, and I know that's why I love going out into nature and being by a stream or a waterfall, is just to be present with it, exactly the way it is, whether the water is running full force when we've had a lot of rain or whether it's been a drought and there's just a trickle. It doesn't matter. It's just to be there right in that present moment. And so much this is what zoos and animals can teach us. I think this is, again, going forth in our talk of what's the future of zoos, is this is certainly a positive aspect of having these institutions, is a place where people can learn more about themselves, more about just being present with the diversity of not only the animal world, but the human world as well. Yes, absolutely. And zoos have, you know, depending on the resources of the zoos, there is a whole institution devoted to that. It can choose, zoos can choose where they devote their resources and how they are empowered to support their mission 
Um, that's something that I've, you know, thought about with SeaWorld in the last um, decade, especially after Blackfish came out, um, and thinking about how SeaWorld really doubled down and got really stubborn about, you know, how it was going to be and how, you know, it, we're going to be this way about our orcas, and eventually went to, you know, moving away from having orca shows and acquiring orcas. But I was looking at SeaWorld, this is a thought from several years ago, but thinking, wow, SeaWorld has so much, I mean, so much infrastructure built in to one of its parks that if they shifted their focus just a little bit, they could still be about the ocean. They can still be um, a place where people can learn about the ocean, experience the ocean, but all they have to do is slightly shift their orientation to be about ocean conservation. Like for real, like how do you throw those mighty resources in a direction that is supportive and helpful even more than you're doing now? And zoos have, you know, they have the resources to enhance and continue to evolve the way that they teach people about the natural world and about people's place within the natural world. And even to say, and this is just be my sort of, I guess, bone to pick about it. It's like, well, do I really need more plastic tchotchkes in the gift shop? Or <laughs> right. can, can I pour that into, you know, into programming that people will also want and that is really, you know, uh, bound for the future. So I'm, I'm thinking about all that you just said, and it is true that the, the future of zoos has, they are such a great educational institution, they really are. And as I said before, mm -hmm. you know, over 200 million people per year just in the U.S. zoos alone attend. So you've got this huge audience and, but where zoos are just beginning to step into the arena of policy and making statements mm -hmm. for human welfare and animal and yeah. nature welfare, I think that is the next leap, if you will, is really as experts, if you will, in animal fields or in scientific conservation to really start to teach the general public through policy um, support, supporting different policies like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and, and the EPA, you know, the, just all of these institutions that are out there that really help make it a better world that's for humans and animals, that to step up and, and put forth opinions, put forth statements, can help teach in a whole new way. So that's a whole other show or another conversation yeah. about yeah. community development and how to teach the community more about what nature is all about, what this earth is about. I just watched a 60-minute little clip with David Attenborough talking about his new film where he talked about, you know, we really do need to start talking about dire situations. And even though people don't like to hear dire, we don't have much time left to change things on the planet. So let me stop there and just say, first of all, we're getting toward the end of the show, Laura. So... <laughs> so I want to offer you a couple minutes to do your wrap-up of whatever wisdom you have to say for our listeners. And again, this is Laura Miller uh, talking about animal communication. Again, the show has just flown. So 
let us know what you'd like to wrap it up with. So if I was going to, to wrap it up, to say I know that there's a lot of discussion about uh, what zoos are going to be into the future, whether they even need to have a future, and that there are people like Damien Aspinall of the Aspinall Foundation who is like, absolutely there won't be, you know, I'm against there being zoos in 30 years and we're trying to get rid of zoos and use, you know, rewilding and dedicate resources toward rewilding animals and in-situ conservation. That said, that doesn't do anything to help all of the animals who are in zoos now. And what I love about animal communication is that it's a way that you can really get in there and help animals who are in the zoo now to foster the conservation mission of your zoo by having programming that encourages this extra level of sympathy in children, young people, and you know even have it as a benefit for keepers and caregivers at the zoo to add to their techniques that they use and protocols. It's, it's another tool in their toolkit if they have an animal who's unhappy. I'll just come out and say it. An animal who's unhappy. <laughs> and how do you, you know, and those things, those movements of imagination and movements of generosity, whatever that bodes for the future of zoos, it helps make sure that the animals who are present in zoos in their lifetime, which is now, are given every possible means to speak for themselves. And one of my um, one of my phrases that often I hear people when they talk about animals, and they, these are animal advocates, will say, "Well, we want to be voices for the voiceless." That's not the issue. Animals have voices, and they're talking all the time. So what AC does is it makes ears for the earless. It helps people hear and that what the animals are already saying, and it empowers people to have that extra dimension of, of sympathy, of imaginative capacity, of consideration. Thank you, Laura Miller, for those amazing words of wisdom and for being on the Peace Brain Show today. Thank you, Gail. I always have such good conversations with you. Thank you for inviting me back. I love it. We still have more to talk about, I'm sure, and we'll probably have another (laughs) show down the road. Um, Everyone, you've been listening to Laura Miller, and you can find her on Instagram and Twitter at OBestBelovedAC. That's O-B-E-S-T-B-E-L-O-V-E-D-A-C. OBestBelovedAC. Uh, And so please tune in to her and ah, take a breath for a moment. I'm going to do a very short Peace Brain meditation just to wrap it up and have so enjoyed this conversation. So take a breath. Ah, Close your eyes. I invite you to close your eyes and just tune in to an animal that is around you and say hello. It could be one of your own pets It could be a bird outside your window. It could be one you saw walking this morning. And just say hello. Just say hello with your heart. 
Hello is one of the most powerful words on the planet because it means I see you, I recognize you. And allow a hello to come back. And bring a smile to your face. For this is really what animal communication is all about. It is about being in that heart space, being willing to acknowledge another species, and being willing to, willing to listen to what it might want to share with you. So take another breath. And bring yourself back to your chair and you may open your eyes. I invite you to go practice, to just take a walk or practice with your domestic animals or ones you see in nature. Just saying hello and seeing what feelings. Laura mentioned earlier that we, each human receives information in different ways. You may feel the answer or the hello back. You may actually see a visual, a picture. You may hear a voice. You may just know what that answer is. So just practice. Say hello. And I encourage you to check out Animal Communication and to find out more about Miss Laura. And if you want to find out me about more about me, Dr. Gail Lash, you can go to tourismforpeace.com and learn how we can help you create these peace parks around the planet. So thank you so much for tuning in to the Peace Brain Show today. Have a wonderful day. Namaste. Bye-bye. Namaste. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Peace Brain Show. You can find us at tourismforpeace.com. Be sure to check out Dr. Gale's Akashic Records readings, her Peace Master Plans for your business or organization, and her book, Hashtag Opt for Peace, Nine Essential Steps to Achieving Peace, Power, and Prosperity. Tune in to BBS Radio, Station One, every other Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern to the Peace Brain Show for your installment of wonder, inspiration, and practical peace.